Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Tom Braithwaite, the company's editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Carlos Ghosn, the former boss of Nissan and Renault, has performed a stunning vanishing act. Earlier this week, he fled from his house arrest in Tokyo, took a private jet to Lebanon, evading bail conditions, police, prosecutors, private detectives, and avoiding a lengthy trial in Tokyo on charges of financial misconduct. How did a man under constant surveillance with his passports confiscated and one of the most recognisable faces in the country escape the Japanese authorities? Leo Lewis, the FT's Tokyo correspondent, is here to discuss the story with me. Leo, first of all, remind us of Carlos Ghosn's prior standing in Japan. He was the chairman of Nissan for many years. He rescued Nissan as a company and he had perfected this alliance with Renault. Those perfections were were starting to show their age and through problems that were emerging with the alliance, uh, it seems that he incurred the displeasure of certain forces within Nissan. He was arrested by the Tokyo prosecutors in November 2018. That was a sort of spectacular arrest at Haneda Airport as he was arriving in the Nissan company jet. He was detained for a pretty lengthy period of about 120 days, split into two periods where he was interrogated in police detention. And then he has since then been in bail in Tokyo in two different houses over that seven-month period, awaiting trial, which seems to be taking longer and longer to begin. He's facing charges of financial misconduct on four separate counts, all of which relate in different ways to his time at the top of Nissan. So he was out of jail for the last few months. Can you explain a little more about what house arrest looks like for him in Tokyo? Well, yeah, and it's not really right to call it house arrest in a way. The conditions of his bail were pretty strict. He wasn't, for example, allowed to see his wife. He wasn't allowed to visit, although other family members were allowed to visit. He had to pretty much move around with the permission of the court. So he could, if he wanted to, leave Tokyo to visit other places in Japan. But what he absolutely couldn't do was leave the country. That was a very clear condition of his bail. He had to have cameras mounted outside the front door of his house to capture the comings and goings of of both of him and anyone that came to the house. And he had to let the authorities know who he was meeting. At the same time, the prosecutors had a car and members of the prosecutor's office stationed outside his house at all times. And according to people that know him, they pretty much followed him wherever he went. If he took a walk to the park, they would follow him in the car until he got to the park and then follow him in the park. So, you know, he was under this pretty close scrutiny. He also, again, people who know him have said that he was pretty much also being tailed by private detectives who may have been hired by Nissan or, or others to follow him. So you do get this picture of pretty tight conditions that he was living in. And it looked like escape would be impossible, and yet somehow he pulled off this Houdini act during Japanese New Year holidays. I know we don't yet know the full details, but is there any more you can tell us on how he has ended up in in Lebanon? What we do know at this point is that the last time that he seems to have been in Tokyo was on the 29th of December. That was just a few days after he had a meeting with his lawyers on Christmas Day, actually, where it became clear to him, or at least the risk seemed very high, that he was going to end up being in Japan for much longer. He then put into motion a plan that people who know him very well have said had been in the making for three months and involved kind of 
private security companies and other people. He seems to have walked out of the house on the 29th, as he often did, you know, to go down the road, perhaps to a French bakery that he knew or to go to the gym. And somehow at that point, he seems to have slipped whatever surveillance he was under and then just disappeared. There's a flight plan that shows a private jet leaving from Osaka. That's about 400 kilometers away from Tokyo. That flew to Istanbul and then there seemed to have been a brief transfer there and then a plane went to Lebanon. But really what we don't know is how each of those stages were affected and how he managed to evade Japanese immigration who would, you know, have checked his passport and immediately have seen that he was somebody who couldn't leave the country for his bail conditions. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot that we're hearing from various people that do know him quite closely. But this was an illegal act and, and a lot of people involved have to say nothing to avoid incriminating themselves. And back in Tokyo, Leo, what is the fallout in Japan? I know it's only getting back to work after the holiday period, but is there embarrassment of the escape or is there somewhat relief that he's no longer there as a thorn in the side of the authorities? Yeah, and it, it certainly was going to be a, uh, a trial that was going to put Japan's justice system under scrutiny. But I still think that the prevailing emotion at the moment is one of deep embarrassment that this has occurred. And I think over the next couple of days, Japan really sort of swings back into motion. And there's already real speculation about what kind of heads are going to roll. I mean, the first thing that seems to be obvious is just how the prosecutors managed to let him evade their surveillance. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then the mechanics of how he got there and what sort of loopholes he jumped through to achieve that. But more broadly, the concerns will be, was the court right to grant him bail? That's a question that ends up going directly to the Ministry of Justice and to the Justice Minister and the judge involved. Then you've got the question of just how much his lawyers may have known about this. I mean, they've already been a little bit deceptive when they were asked about his passports. They mentioned the three that they have under lock and key in their their office in Tokyo. They didn't mention the fact that they knew perfectly well that he had a French passport that he carried with him legitimately. And so I think there's going to be a certain amount of questioning of his lawyers, and that's all to come next week. But the, certainly the, the emotion in the newspapers and the vox pops that Japanese media have been doing has all been just complete disbelief that something of this profile was able to skip through that scrutiny. Leo, this has shone a spotlight on the Japanese justice system and shown the differences with a lot of Western countries. Can you explain some of those and explain what we might have seen had this progressed further? From the word go, it's been obvious that Japan does things very differently. You know, he was held for a long period without being formally charged. He was interrogated without his lawyers being present and so on and so on. But more broadly, the concern was that a system that has and boasts of a kind of 99% conviction rate is by definition a very difficult place to successfully argue your innocence, which is what Ghosn has claimed all along. On the sidelines of that, he has essentially accused the Japanese justice system of being weaponized to get rid of him as the head of the Nissan-Renault alliance. And so he's been full of criticism. In fact, as the moment he landed in Lebanon, he pretty much a day or so afterwards was saying he didn't flee justice, he fleed injustice. And there's the clue of what he thinks about it. But those views are shared quite widely. There's been a lot of criticism of the Japanese justice system. And this trial, which was going to last a long time, was going to put huge amount of scrutiny 
on the system. And the world generally has been robbed of an opportunity to see the Japanese trial system really in action and under that very, very close scrutiny it was going to get. And Carlos Ghosn is now in Beirut. All he's put out so far is a short statement denying that his family helped him escape. What are we likely to hear from him next? Well, apart from the press conference that he's got scheduled for next week, that's on January the 8th, it could be quite limited. The general view at the moment seems to be that he's very unlikely to attempt to leave Lebanon, although there has been rumours that he might try and, and make it to France. The attempt that he seems to be making is to have a trial held in Lebanon. A lot of that seems to be a bit of window dressing. Nobody's really sure that that's the equivalent of the trial that he was facing in Japan. But he certainly will go through the motions of trying to put that together. And that effort, I suppose, is going to take a number of months to come together. The view is he's going to stay in Lebanon and try and do that and probably can't really leave Lebanon either. You know, there's this Interpol red notice that's been served. He could find himself facing some difficulties if he goes to any country really in the EU or to the US. And so he's probably not going to attempt to do that. But we'll sit here in in Lebanon and, and see what happens next. I mean, he has to be extremely cautious in what he says, because there will be very, very heavy scrutiny of who helped him perfect this escape and how criminally liable any of those people are for having assisted him. Thank you, Leo, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our latest episodes on The Year Business Went Woke, what two books reveal about the Trump administration and what to expect from the UK's new government, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode of FT News in Focus, rate us or leave a comment on your podcast provider. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.